Welcome to The Deciding Point, our Crack Rackets weekly roundup of the biggest storylines happening throughout the tennis world. On this week's show, I want to talk about Rafael Nadal capturing his 12th title in Barcelona, continuing to prove he is the man to beat on the clay courts. I want to talk about Ashley Barty, very much showing why she is deserving of that number one ranking in the world. Of course, I also want to touch on Jensen Brooksby winning another challenger title, the action that happened at the 250 level, and then a little bit of college tennis news as well. With that in mind, Westoff, roll those credits and let's start today's show. Let's just marvel at Rafael Nadal's accomplishments in Barcelona. For his career, he is now 66-4 at the event, of course, Barcelona Stadium Court called Rafael Nadal Court. You can understand why as Rafa earns his 12th title of his career this week in Barcelona, knocks off Stefano Tsitsipas in a fantastic three-set final. And you look for Rafa now, he is one of just six players to be ranked in the top 16 in both whole percentage and break percentage via Tennis Abstract stat leaderboard. Now, of course, those two numbers, metrics of how frequently someone is holding serve, how frequently someone is breaking serve, that there are only six ATP players in the top 16 of both categories, speaks to how difficult it is to exceed at both of those things and speaks to why Rafael Nadal continues to have the degree of success he has this late in his career. You look for Rafa now. He's 25 and 6. Since the tour resumed in August and, you know, 25 and 6, you think for him, oh my God, is that actually kind of vulnerable for Rafael Nadal? Usually he's winning, what, 28 of 30 matches? 25 and 6 feels a little light, but... Five of Rafa's six losses came against players who were ranked in the top 10 at the time of the match, and that sixth loss came in Rafa's first clay court match of the 2020 season. It was a Rome semifinal loss to Diego Schwartzman. He went on to beat Schwartzman in the subsequent French Open. So for Rafael Nadal, it's clear that by the eye test, by his results, the numbers, he's continuing to play some of the best tennis in his career. And of course, you look at the numbers, his first serve win percentage, actually 2% higher right now than it has been throughout his career. He's hovering in the low 80s. Typically, he's a high 70% first serve win percentage. He's also holding serve 2% more of the time and breaking serve 1% more of the time. Now, again, those are on the margins. You may think 2%, that can't can't be that much. But for Rafael Nadal's numbers to keep improving at this stage of his career, it speaks to how much more efficient he has become as a player. Early in his career, he could get by with his physicality by just extending matches two, three hours, outlasting opponents. He's so efficient now, and that's manifested itself in his game, his willingness to move forward, his willingness to be decisive, attack, you know, in particular in that final in Barcelona here this week, the Stefano Tsitsipas second serve, of course. He remains as disciplined as ever. We all know his combinations. He's going to go inside-out forehand, inside-out forehand on the deuce side to open up the inside-in. He wasn't afraid to attack the Tsitsipas forehand. He never wavered when he went down early breaks in the first and third sets. It was a well-deserved title for Rafa Nadal in Barcelona. Again, he has established himself clearly as the favorite entering the French Open. Of course, no one was going to deny that beforehand, even given his loss to Rublev in Monte Carlo. In terms of the other takeaways from Barcelona, obviously Tsitsipas, he won what? 
seven, eight matches in a row without dropping a set, came so close to beating Nadal, and he is right there by Tennis Abstract. He's the third best player in the world on clay behind just Nadal and Dominic Team. You look at yearly Tennis Abstract, Tsitsipas ranks as the number one player here in this 2021 season. You can understand why for Tsitsipas, he's 45-11 and 11 since the tour resumed in August. He's made two slam semifinals. He's made, what, I think, two uh, finals on top of uh, all of the semifinal runs. He has made quarterfinal runs. He's made as well. You have to be really, really good to beat Stefano Tsitsipas right now. Of course, Rafa is really, really good, but short of that sort of performance, it's going to be really hard to knock Tsitsipas out at the French Open. Of course, your other semifinalists, Yannick Sinner, Pablo Carreno Busta, they're not going anywhere. And Sinner was a quarterfinalist last year. Pablo Carreno Busta was a quarterfinalist at last year's US Open. We know what those guys are capable at the slams. Barcelona was a very good sneak peek of what we've got ahead of us here in this ATP clay court season. That Rafa won the title should surprise no one. That Tsitsipas made another final is something people should get used to. Sinner, Carino Busta, all the other fantastic players in the weights as well. It was an outstanding week of tennis in Barcelona. Let's talk now about Ashley Barty, who earned another title here in 2021 as she captures the title in Stuttgart this past week. For Barty, you look since the start of the 2019 season. She is 79-17 and 17 overall in her WTA Tour level events. That's an 82% win percentage. And to contextualize, we did some podcasts last summer looking at some of the best seasons in either ATP or WTA Tour history, and it's a lot of the names you would expect. People like Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal on the men's side. People like Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Justine Ennin of late, Monica Seles, if you want to go back to the early 90s. We looked at all of them. And typically, those players in the prime of their careers, they're putting together seasons where they're winning 80 to 85% of their matches, winning multiple titles, reaching multiple finals. That's exactly what Ashley Barty has done since the start of the 2019 season. Obviously, her crowning achievement, that 2019 French Open. But you look here, even just this season, she wins the Masters title, or the 1,000 level title, excuse me, in Miami. She now follows that up with another title on a different surface. We go from slow outdoor hard courts to fast indoor clay courts in Stuttgart. Doesn't matter. Barty's able to capture the title. And of course, I mentioned this in my Rafa section. Barty is one of only six women to rank in the top 16 in both hold percentage and break percentage as well. You look at that list on the women's side since the start of the, uh, I should say the last 52 weeks since the tour restarted in August. Here's the list of players to rank in the top 16. It's Elisa Mertens, who was your WTA Tour wins leader back in 2020. It's Igor Sviantek, who of course captured a French Open title. Arena Sabalenka, who was spectacular this weekend. By the way, Arena Sabalenka, 35-11 and 11 now since the tour resumed in August, 10 of her 11 results, let me repeat, uh, losses, let me repeat that, 10 of her 11 losses have been three set losses, the majority of those 11, I think it's 9 of the 11, have come against players ranked in the top 15 at the time of the match, I believe the other two are against players who are now inside the top 15 of the WTA rankings, but it didn't matter the sort of power that, that Ashley Barty had thrown at her by Sapolenka, it didn't matter 
the consistency, the you know, the movement of the ball, the exceptional placement and precision of Alina Svitolina the round before, none of that mattered for Ashley Barty, even the overwhelming power of, uh, you know, again, any of her opponents this week, uh, because she was able to, you know, I, Carolina Pliskova was the name I was looking for earlier, she was just able to play first strike tennis, she's so effective with that first serve, it makes sense uh, that she's a top 16 per, uh, player in terms of holding serve, she's also just so efficient at getting a turns deep in the center of the court and getting the point back to neutral. And then eventually, you're going to have to hit a ball onto her forehand wing. And from there, she's going to turn defense into offense, whether it's down the line, whether it's beating you to the spot, going short angle or drive uh, cross court. Her two-handed backhand continues to get better and better. And I thought the best thing she did this week on the clay was use that two-handed backhand on the return of serve to ensure that the point could get to neutral, to not let Svinalina Sapalenka just tee off on first and play first strike tennis. Ashley Barty was sensational this week, and again, you look for her since the start of the 2019 season, clay court results specifically, she's 17-3, and winning 85% of her matches, her hold percentages, break percentages stay relatively similar, if not improve, by about a percentage point or two. She is, by every metric, and has been the most consistent player in the world since 2019. You can pencil her in pretty much into the quarterfinals, semifinals of any event she plays. And in my opinion, right alongside of Simona Halep, those are your two co-favorites entering the French Open. I think Muguruza, absolutely a threat. Iga Sviantek, after what she did last year, we're all going to be watching out for her level. But you look over the course of time. And by the way, Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings, Halep's the number one clay court player, Sviantek's number two. Barty's number three. That's accurate, folks. Those three players with their clay court results over these past, really, three seasons, uh, they deserve and do stand to be ranked that high and do stand out above the rest of the field. Now, the conditions in Stuttgart are going to be nothing like the conditions in Paris, but you watch Ashley Barty again, how well-rounded her game is. She was exceptional this week in Stuttgart. So was Arena Sabalenka, as I mentioned earlier. So was Svitolina, who's quietly been as consistent as anyone not named Ashley Barty, probably since 2014 in the women's game. And, you know, again, Simona Halep was right there. Sabalenka just played her best ball in the semifinals. It was a fascinating week of results, but more importantly, we saw a lot of the top women in the game play their best tennis this week in Stuttgart. And if that's the case in Paris as well, it will be a phenomenal ending to the 2021 women's clay court season. While the 500-level events got the spotlight this week on the ATP and WTA Tours, there were a couple of fascinating 250-level events that I want to touch on here now. We'll start on the women's side, where Serana Kirstea earned her second career WTA Tour-level uh, title, but her first since the 2008 season. And you look at Kirstea's run on her pathway to the title in Istanbul. Simply outstanding. You can't say, oh, it was a fluke draw. Oh, all the good players were over playing the event in Stuttgart. No, 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 no. Serana Kirstea 
earned every bit of her title this week. Doesn't drop a set, knocking off Anastasia Potapova, the talented young Russian, knocking off talented young French woman, number 12, by the way, on Tennis Abstract's clay court ELO ratings in Fiona Farrow. She then knocks off talented young Ukrainian hard-hitting Marta Kostyuk, and then a 6-1-7-6 victory over Elisa Mertens in the final. That saw Serana Kirstea just hit Mertens off of the court in what was so amazing in that final in particular, it felt like the dam was about to burst. It felt like Mertens was going to capture that second set, perhaps from there, run away with the match that Kersey had just kind of lost the rhythm. Uh, Mertens goes up 5-2 in the second but it didn't matter because Kirstea comes storming back as she did all week. She just played for the win, and she went and hit her shots down the line, big cross court, taking the ball early throughout the first set, set and a half of her matches. From there, she gets to play the drop shot, gets to go off speed, sort of mix things up on her opponents. Uh, again, you look for Kirstea, who has a career-high ranking inside the top 30 and is now 20-11 and 11 in her last 52, uh, 52 weeks. But, you know, certainly this was unexpected that she hadn't made a final since 2019, that she hadn't won that title since 2008, that this was only the second WTA level final for of her career on clay courts and that it came against the gauntlet of opponents that it did without her dropping a set. Uh, it speaks to the parody as we talk about all the time in the women's game. Serana Kirstea, it wasn't a fluke run, as I mentioned. She out-hit her opponents in each of her matches you look for her on the week. Uh, you know, she was able to win about, you know, 60% of both her first serve points, but that also about 50% of her return points in general as well. That's a pretty good recipe in terms of finding your way into the winner's circle. It felt like every time her serve got broken, she was immediately able to break back. She was spectacular this week. I have to say, just to comment on some of the other players who were outstanding, the Konya Kostya quarterfinal in Istanbul might have been my favorite match of the week. I think Fiona Farrow, despite losing to Kirstea, super dangerous entering all of the serious clay court events here uh, in 2021. And then, you know, Marta Kostyuk, final in Abu Dhabi. It's not new news to say she's one of the many talented youngsters rising in the women's game. Third highest ranked uh, under 19 player in the world inside the top 100, obviously, as well. And then, you know, for Lisa Mertens, why did she play Istanbul? She was trying to get a bunch of matches under her belt this week. She was trying to, you know, reacclimate herself to the clay court. She did a great job in getting to the final, played a really competitive semifinal match as well, and did great to bounce back, take that 5-2 lead. But just, Kirstea had the firepower advantage. She was able to hit through those courts so well. She very much earns that title in Istanbul. On the men's side, what a what a tournament in Belgrade, Serbia. It ended with Matteo Berrettini in the winner's circle. He earns the fourth ATP title of his career, first since 2019. And for him to get that after dealing with so many injuries over these past 15 months, impossible to not feel good for, I believe, currently 24, but he'll turn 25 at some point this year. Uh, 25-year-old Italian who, his backhand's gotten better. And in that match against Karatsev in the final was a three-set win for Berrettini, 7-6 in the third. Uh, as the match went on, Berrettini just realized, said, okay, Karatsev's going to try and keep picking on my backhand. Every time I hit a slice, he's running around it, hitting that inside-in forehand to open up his down-the-line forehand that ultimately he moves in behind. And, you know, for Karatsev, 
talked about him so much here. 41 and 15 now since uh, the tour resumed and the two clay court challenger titles. He beats Djokovic in the match of the tournament in the semifinals. His game just so smooth. His ability to turn defense to offense, keep you on hit your back foot, but also his ability to absorb and redirect pace his hands at the net. He's the real deal. He belongs in the top 20. He is one of those guys, much like Rafael Nadal, who's a top 16 player in both hold percentage and break percentage over these last 52 weeks. But again, to get Berrettini, he's driving through the backhand better, wasn't so reliant on the slice, was comfortable hitting through the two-handed backhand return and hitting through it in rallies as well. And the ball wasn't just sitting in the middle of the court. He actually got good drive, good depth, good pace, and it allowed him to set up inside out, inside in forehands, move forward. Of course, his first serve is still one of the top five serves on tour and sets up everything else he wants to do, excuse me, but you know, the 250 in Belgrade overall, that semifinal match was the match. And for Karatsev to outgrind Djokovic, and you know, Djokovic had early break leads in set one and set two, and I think he actually had a, a chance for an early break lead in set three, but ultimately wasn't able to get the break. Karatsev then goes from there to break Djokovic in that next game. Funny how often that happens. It was noticeable how difficult it was for Novak to generate pace, for him to just hit Karatsev off the points. And of course, that's never been Novak's game, but he does find ways throughout matches to earn a couple of easy points, whether it's taking a return early down the line, whether it's going for the big plus one ball, incorporating the drop shot, whatever it may be. He, it was a little bit harder for him to do that, and that's been a theme for him in both of the clay court events he's played this season. And again, that's three out of five sets to out-physical Djokovic. That might be the toughest task to ask out of anyone in tennis history, but Karatsev was <clears throat> excuse me, able to do it. His ability to, again, be decisive, that inside-in forehand, mwah, is it beautiful, his comfort moving forward. He was outstanding. Again, it, it was a nice week, by the way, for uh, Philip Trajinovic, who, who found his rhythm there as well. But overall, Berrettini and Karatsev, as well as Serana Kirstea's, your stories from this past week's 250 events. Folks, I'm not sure there's much left for us here at Crack Rackets to say about 20-year-old rising American Jensen Brooksby. We've talked about him so frequently over the past few months here at Crack Rackets, and that's because throughout this 2021 season, he's continued to prove that he is one of the rising stars on the ATP Tour. Brooksby wins his second challenger in two weeks in Tallahassee. He knocks off Bjorn Fertangelo, who was the last player to defeat him at the challenger level in the Cleveland final they played about a month ago. You look for Brooksby here this past week. He earned four three-set wins on his way to the title and the green clay of Tallahassee. It's that much more remarkable when you consider Brooksby won the challenger title last week in Orlando and was different because I suppose he didn't drop a set in Orlando, but the fatigue from that event to play that much tennis to come the next week, have to play four physical matches on green clay courts and to still emerge as the champion speaks to the the fighting uh, capability. It speaks to the mentality, the attitude of this young American whose game is never going to blow you away with sex appeal. He doesn't hit the flashy forehand down the line, the huge backhand winner, although his backhand looks so natural. He makes it look very easy, but he doesn't hit the 135 mile per hour serve. He doesn't hit the flashy drop volleys or the on the run winners down the lines. He just does a little bit of everything. He lulls you to death, but perhaps more than anything else, 
The kid just does not quit, and it's just amazing. You know, you can see it in his body language, his fight. He wears it on his sleeve because the energy, the emotion he shows on court, it fuels him, and clearly it's working. 23-4 and four now to start the 2021 season in tour matches, and that's across, you know, Futures, Challenger, and ATP level. You look for him now on the Challenger circuit. His last four results... Title in South Africa, final on the indoor hardcourts of Cleveland, title on the outdoor hardcourts of Orlando, title on the Tallahassee Green Clay Courts. He's into the top 175 for the first time in his career. Again, it, when you do it three weeks, four weeks, two months in a row on the Challenger circuit as Jensen Brooksby has, that's not a fluke. That's legit, folks. That means his game, it works at the challenger level. And with his ranking now, Grand Slam qualities aren't even a question. He's going to get into that for the rest of the year. The real thing moving forward, where where does he go from here? Clearly, he's having success at the challenger level. Can he get a wild card into a main draw, into qualifying at an ATP event? Does the lack of you know big natural weapons he have, how will that impact him on the ATP tour? That's the question now, because he's answered all of the challenger level questions. We know his game works there, his consistency, his ability to move the ball around the court, his ability to take the ball early, that backhand, his ability to put serves and returns on the court at a high percentage. His game works. We just need to see it tested at the highest level now. And to say that about a 20-year-old, that's the highest praise you can offer. To say, you know, no, 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 he's got the game. We just have to see how it holds up against the best of the best. That statement is a testament to the success of Jensen Brooksby here to start 2021, who again earns his second consecutive challenger title this past week in Tallahassee. We've actually got the perfect topic for today's deciding point as a decision has finally been made regarding the 2021 NCAA tennis tournament selection process. The announcement coming today as we learn the NCAA committee going to incorporate manual adjustments into this year's selection process. Excuse me, I'm just so excited by the news. It's not just going to be a direct running of the computer rankings and using those rankings to determine who makes the NCAA. NCAA field. And of course, that's a topic we've explored at length on our Great Shot podcast, the computer ranking skewing in favor of those teams that had the opportunity to play a plethora of out-of-conference matches to maintain as normal of a schedule in this 2021 season as possible. Of course, the conference most adversely affected this year has been the Big Ten which was not allowed to play out-of-conference uh, out matches, excluding the ITA kickoff weekend. So this news is a big decision for all of those Big Ten schools, all of those Big Ten individuals as well, as the NCAA committee announcing they're going to use manual adjustments, not just for the selection committee for the team event, but for the selection process for the individual singles and doubles tournaments as well. And now, in terms of their criteria, it's going to stay relatively similar to the rankings. It's going to be wins and losses here in the 2021 season, your strength of schedule, the position you are playing on your team's roster. But the big news is they're also going to incorporate uh, results from past year's events. Traditionally for the Big Ten, how many schools have they gotten into the NCAA tournament? And I know they're considering using that traditional number to try to determine how many belong in the field this year. Of course, they're going to go look at past results so that players such as, you know, just out of example, Will Blumberg, 
Alex Kovacevic, Cannon Kingsley, who have been all Americans, but by the computer rank in the past, but by the computer rankings, perhaps not as ranked highly this year due to a lack of opportunity to ensure those players aren't, you know, taken advantage of, to excuse those players for lack of a better term, aren't screwed out of the 2021 tournament draw. And it's impossible to look at the dis- this decision and think it's anything but a success, especially, I'm, you know, I've been someone who has been relatively critical of the lack of the decision uh, of the decision process, the fact that there just really hadn't been a decision made so far. That was something that was immensely frustrating to us here at Cracked Rackets, but kudos to the ITA, kudos to the NCAA tournament. Perhaps it took them longer than we expected, but this was the right decision. I mean, you have to incorporate some sort of manual adjustments. I think you have to acknowledge that you have to be brought in your context beyond just this season, particularly given how many of these teams we've seen compete against the best of the best in college tennis, not just here this year, but the composition of these rosters we've seen in the college tennis landscape for two, three, some cases, four years. You know you know what Will Blumberg, eight-time All-American, presents as a player. Certainly, we wouldn't want him not in the NTAA field. So uh, kudos to the ITA, kudos to the NCAA, kudos to the tennis committee for getting this decision uh, correct and for ultimately ensuring that we are going to have the sort of stretch, the sort of home stretch to this 2021 season that we deserve, particularly after no postseason play in 2020. The few conference tournaments we've had have already delivered the goods. And of course, we'll talk about all of that action on this week's Great Shot podcast. But again, today's deciding point, the NCAA committee announcing they are going to alter their selection criteria for both the team and the individual events. And that is great news uh, for all of us college tennis fans as we prepare for the home stretch of this 2021 season.